The scripture reading for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29 through 34 and 58. If you'd like to read along, it's printed in your bulletins. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de 1 Corintios, capítulo 15, versículos 29 al 34 y versículo 58. Si no hay resurrección, ¿qué sacan los que se bautizan por los muertos? Si en definitiva los muertos no resucitan, ¿por qué se bautizan por ellos? ¿Y nosotros? ¿Por qué nos exponemos al peligro a todas horas? Que cada día muero, hermanos, es tan cierto como el orgullo que siento por ustedes en Cristo Jesús nuestro Señor. ¿Qué he ganado si, solo por motivos humanos, en Éfeso luché contra las fieras? Si los muertos no resucitan, comamos y bebamos, que mañana moriremos. No se dejen engañar. Las malas compañías corrompen las buenas costumbres. Vuelvan a su sano juicio como, es, como conviene y dejen de pecar. En efecto, hay algunos de ustedes que no tienen conocimiento de Dios. Para vergüenza de ustedes lo digo. Por lo tanto, mis queridos hermanos, manténganse firmes e inconmovibles, progresando siempre en la obra del Señor, conscientes de que su trabajo en el Señor no es en vano. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the time that we have now in your word. And we acknowledge that they are your words. They come from your mouth, your heart, from God. And so give us an attentiveness that's appropriate to its source, to your person. And we pray that you would give us grace to not only understand, but to receive and respond with love, with joy, with obedience, with radical obedience. Uh, we pray that you would do something here by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a world that's all about managing and minimizing risk, don't we? We live in a world, and more and more these days, that is a complex 
set of strategies to avoid danger, avoid pain, to increase our sense of safety, to work around things that threaten us physically, relationally, emotionally. We live in a world that minimizes or at least strives to minimize, if not strives to eliminate all risk and all harm. That's not all a bad thing, right? We do live in a broken world, and the Bible does give us plenty of wisdom about living wisely and good stewards of the things that we have and the resources that we have, not to live masochistically or unwisely, but wisely. But it raises a question whether or not we know in this day and age how to live with courage in the face of danger and in the face of risk? Do we know how to not just get around or buy our way around risk and danger and loss? But do we know where to go or where to find the spiritual and emotional resources called courage to face risk and danger and harm. What we find in this passage is the Apostle Paul, who's really a person that for some reason, is now deliberately exposing himself to the possibility of loss in all different areas of life. Deliberately exposing himself to loss for the sake of love. And this is his proposition to us. Will we hear it today? The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us incredible courage, even supernatural courage, to risk danger and courage to resist sin. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us incredible courage, supernatural courage, otherworldly courage, to risk physical harm and danger to ourselves for the sake of love and courage to resist sin in our lives. We'll take a look at each of those pieces and then we'll talk about it. We always like to have a Q&A time. We'll do that in just a few minutes. First, courage to risk physical danger. Notice how the argument of the Apostle Paul goes in this passage. He starts off, first of all, in verse 29 with a fairly cryptic statement. He says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, it's kind of unclear what exactly he's referring to. Some sort of a practice in the Corinthian church that was going on in the first century. There are various explanations that scholars throughout the centuries have given to try to give us an understanding of what is going on here. It's possible that some people, maybe erroneously, were practicing a baptism on behalf of those who actually had embraced Jesus, but prior to being baptized had died 
And some Corinthians Christians started a practice where they would be baptized on behalf of those believers that had died. That may be the practice that is being referred to here. Paul doesn't necessarily endorse it. He's just referring to it. But whatever else is going on here in the church, this much is clear. Paul's point, his assumption, his statement here is that any such practice would not be necessary in light of the resurrection of Jesus because those who belong to him, who have since died, will not remain dead. We've looked at this over the past couple of weeks that the great hope, the great promise of the Christian faith is that in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, His dying and coming back to life, what we have is not simply an isolated historical event, a little freak show that happened 2,000 years ago for people to debate for centuries afterwards whether it happened or whether it not, and it happened one time and that's it. No, more than just an isolated event. In verse 20, not printed here, Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits, the beginning point of what will be a future harvest of more resurrections. Of people who have died, those who have embraced Jesus, who belong to him by faith, as well as those who will, who will remain alive the day that Jesus comes again, that all such people will be transformed and raised from the dead, alive forever, perfected forever, body and soul, as God created us to be in relationship with him. The dead will not remain dead. All will be made alive. And this is what the resurrection of Jesus promises us. That in His resurrection we see a foretaste, a preview, a snapshot of one day what will be for all those who are in relationship with Him. You too will be raised from the dead. So look at what Paul says in verses 30 and 31 here. Follow his argument. Because of the reality of Jesus' resurrection in the past, and our resurrection together with Him, but in the future, one day when He returns, Paul says... We endanger ourselves every hour. I die every day subjecting myself to the risk of death, every day facing the possibility of death and of danger. Even here, making this vague reference in verse 31 to fighting wild beasts in the city of Ephesus. It's not clear if that's a reference to persecution that perhaps Paul had faced, or if it's a metaphorical, figurative reference to those who were out to kill him as wild animals, as it were. The idea, of course, here is that Paul 
is pursuing other people in the Mediterranean region out of love. It's his great joy to live out the gospel, to bear the gospel in his words and in his deeds, to follow Jesus everywhere he goes, to have new relationships with people like the Corinthian Christians whom he's writing to here and whom he calls his glory, his joy, his prize. I'll do anything for the sake of love for people like you. Even subjecting myself to danger, self-sacrifice, and even death. How strange. Because we live in a world and in a culture here today, and especially here in this culture, in this country, where American consumerism runs rampant, where everything in the message of our day is to move away from pain, away from inconvenience, away from danger, away from harm, to safety, to antibacterial everything, to quiet corners where you are protected and hermetically sealed off from any threat to your convenience, let alone your life. And Paul is running in exactly the opposite direction of our country's culture. Now, is he crazy? Does he not love his life? I don't think that's what it is. Remember, in the verses right before this, Paul is very clear to call death an enemy of God and therefore the enemy of his people. Paul is not a masochist. He's not asking for death in his life. But he knows that there may be a great cost that one is willing to pay and able to pay if he or she embraces the reality of resurrection. The sure promise of Jesus' resurrection in the past and our resurrection with him in the future gives us power to risk danger and even death for the sake of the gospel. This is not simply an issue of personality or natural Temperament, you know, a person that just sort of swaggers their way through life. Maybe some of you are like that. That's not me. A person that just naturally has a lot of guts. Anthony here next week is going to go skydiving. Do you have to be an extreme type of person like Anthony in order to heed what Paul is saying here? A daredevil. I mean, my idea of risk in life is trying a new shampoo, you know? You know, I mean, even this church planting business to dare to go out and take my whole family in this financially and spiritually and practically somewhat precarious position is just so against the grain of who I am. If you want to see the results of all the personality tests I've ever taken, you'll see just what this is costing me, you see. No, not natural temperament, 
but supernatural belief in resurrection. You see, because when the threat of death becomes the doorway to paradise, such that the Apostle Paul in another letter to the Philippian church can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or when the greatest enemy of life, death itself, has been destroyed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when the greatest thing that you can lose, your physical life itself, is promised back to you at the end of human history and the start of eternity. And not just promised back to you, but given back to you in better condition than when you lost it. Then, the final barrier to all temporal risk is finally broken. And we start to be freed to love and to live for the kingdom, embodying the gospel, whatever the cost, even when the cost of such love is everything. Because if the resurrection is real, friends, your life is indestructible. Strange words from Jesus himself when talking to his disciples about the kinds of persecution and opposition that they will in fact face, most of whom among the twelve actually did end up giving their lives in martyrdom. Jesus, giving them a heads up on that, says this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death, but not A hair on your head will perish. Out of faithfulness to me and the gospel, compelled, gripped in your life by the love of God and the grace of God that pushes you out into the lives of other people into dangerous and precarious and, yes, life-threatening situations, it may result in your death. You may die, but not a hair on your head will perish. He's talking about the resurrection. You might die, but you're going to live. They might take your life, but you're going to keep every hair on your head. You're going to get it all back. And you can start to live this out with joy and passion and great resurrection risk. The question before us is, if the opportunity arose, would you be willing to risk your life to love and serve another person? 
Would you be willing, armed with assurance, grounded in the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past, which gives us, Paul says, a view to what one day will be the future of all those who belong to him, namely, resurrection from the dead and life eternal and perfected, Armed with that assurance, would you be willing to risk your life to love and serve? Would you be willing to do it like we saw centuries ago? Christians in the first couple of centuries, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century A.D., the way they lived when the great plagues of the Mediterranean world just swept over and annihilated massive portions of the global population. In some cities, a whole third of a city, in some places over half, wiped out, devastated by this disease that no one understood. And it's not just the physical toll, but the fear that overtook Again, not just one region, human civilization. So much so that there are historical accounts of Romans, Roman citizens, throwing out infected, diseased members of their family, throwing them out of the house, leaving them in the streets to die on their own so as to purge their homes from disease and to preserve their lives. And not only so, then fled the cities to the safer country regions to get out of town to preserve their lives. And here in the midst of that were Christians who stayed in the cities when everyone else was going the opposite direction. Stayed to care for the sick and the dying, bringing them into their own homes, subjecting themselves to exposure to these diseases, and certainly subjecting themselves to death. And historians will point out that this left a powerful impression upon their neighbors, and you can understand why. And you might ask, well, why was it that they lived this way? Not fleeing, but staying, and not just staying, but taking on disease, indeed taking on death. Why did they do it? How could they do it? It was because they knew that they were people of the resurrection. Because they believed the words of Jesus in John 11 when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And in our context here, you've got to wonder what is it that would cause us to become so protective about our physical safety, our physical well-being, what might it look like, perhaps not disease, but maybe perhaps a spike in crime that might cause people to flee our cities again? 
or maybe some other threat on our lives. Of course, all of this is on my mind this past week when the news broke out about this terrible series of assaults, even homicide and attacks in Petworth, just a few blocks north of here. The danger that is here, the danger that does, that is involved in embodying a neighborhood and loving neighbor and caring for one another. What can this look like here for us? Maybe, just maybe, our experience of the grace of God and our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ just might compel us to live or maybe hang out in so-called edgier parts of the neighborhood. Places that perhaps presently we might resist out of fear for safety. Maybe parts of the city that we would be unwilling to live in because it's dangerous or unsafe. And again, I'm not saying that those aren't real considerations and real factors to weigh. I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to consider safety for ourselves and our family in a real substantive way. But maybe the question, is it only fear for safety that has you living where you live or responding to the call to love in the way that you are? As a pastor and author, John Piper, put it on this topic, the call of Christ is a call to live a life of sacrifice and loss and suffering that would be foolish to live if there was no resurrection from the dead. The call of Christ is a call to live a life of sacrifice and loss and suffering that would be foolish to live if there were no resurrection from the dead. It's not a call to be reckless or foolish. Paul is not saying go out there and do something stupid. But he does call us to consider what it might look like to live in line with his example. As he says to us, follow me as I follow Christ Follow me, Paul says, the one who died daily, the one who endangered himself every day for the sake of love, for the sake of the gospel. Look, and I'm thinking through this all week, looking at myself in the mirror and saying, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this? I'm looking at my wife. I'm looking at my 10-month-old baby. I'm saying, do I really believe Believe this. You can't work through radical calls like this apart from community, can you? I need you. And we need each other to work through what can it mean to embrace a broken world with much danger and even risk of death for the sake of living in line with the gospel. First, the courage 
to risk physical danger. Secondly, the courage to resist sin. The second point, I will do more quickly. The second half of this passage, Paul points out how the resurrection gives us courage to resist sin. In verse 32, if the dead are not raised, well then, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And either Paul here is quoting Isaiah 22, or he's just taking a popular quotation from Epicurean philosophy in his day. And it's simply to state this fact. Look, if there is no resurrection, if there is no future, if there is no tomorrow, if there is no bodily reality beyond today, well then do whatever you want, right? There is no basis for moral behavior. There is no basis for a call to live love. There is no basis for a call to live justice. Let's party like there's no tomorrow. But, if there is resurrection, then here's how Paul's logic goes. That first of all, even if tomorrow we die, then the day after tomorrow we will live again. And therefore, what we do here in this life does have consequences. And that we do live lives that are accountable for a God who really is our judge. And yet, by His grace, offers Himself to us as a Father full of forgiveness, full of costly sacrifice to Himself, paying the death that we deserve in His Son that He might have us for eternity, restored in relationship. But we are accountable for who we are and how we live. Because the day after tomorrow, we'll live again, and we'll live again bodily. So what you do here in this body actually does matter. Sometimes we just sort of assume that whatever picture of the afterlife we might have, because it doesn't involve our physical bodies, God's just sort of going to hit delete and give us a new version of me that has no connection or no continuity with my life now. And Paul is saying, no, he's going to raise your bodies to life. You're still going to be the same you. Yes, transformed. Yes, perfected. Yes, glorious. By that point, yes, sinless, yes, indestructible, yes, with full joy and fullness of joy in God and in community, but you will still be you. And so start living your future self even today. The perfected self that you one day will be. Paul tells us about resurrection and talks to us about his resurrection like the dawning of a new day. A new morning. He says this in verse 34 when he says, come back to your senses. Literally, he's saying, sober up after a hard, dark night of a little too much whatever. Here comes morning. Live in light of the morning. 
Jesus has pulled back the shades. The sunlight is streaming in. The birds are chirping. Would you put on clothes that's appropriate for the day? Living in light of the day that is coming when all things will finally be made new. Will you live new and resist sin in your life? The resurrection gives us courage to appear unsophisticated in our battle against sin and lovelessness. In verse 34 again, Paul says, There are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And what he's referring to here are Corinthian Christians who started presenting themselves as having this special, sophisticated kind of knowledge of God that somehow excused them from basic living. Basic living in line with the love of Christ loving God and loving neighbor, these different areas and ways in which we can try to see ourselves as being above the call to love or above the basic call to do right and to do good. But the resurrection gives us courage sometimes to be unpopular. In verse 33, Paul says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And here he's Quoting from the ancient Greek poet Menander from the 3rd century B.C., reminding us that we all become most like the people we most like. The way in which the influences around us actually do shape who we are and the sense that Paul is talking about here is the way that the in-crowds, the way in which peer pressure and the way in which the social circles in which we move and live actually nudge us towards righteousness or towards sin and the fears of losing a group's acceptance, how much that can shape our behavior. Paul says sometimes you may need to give up the approval of those around you for the sake of love for God and for the sake of love for others around you. That you may actually at times, bolstered by the resurrection, have to detach yourselves from people, sometimes for a time, at other times, permanently. And don't misunderstand, this is not a call for Christians to avoid those who aren't Christians or to only be friends with other Christians. In fact, Paul is actually here referring to Christians who are bad company in the Corinthian church, but who are teaching and influencing people in a bad way. Paul is calling them to alert living, vigilant living, courageous living. Friends, sometimes, as they often say, it's easier, or maybe it seems easier, to die for the sake of the gospel than to live for the sake of of the gospel. Paul calls us to both. The call to risk danger and death, even physical harm to ourselves for the sake of love. But he also calls us to this great thing of doing battle against sin and selfishness in our lives. Sometimes that's even harder. Sometimes that's the thing that we overlook, that we put to the side. What have you been unwilling to do 
out of fear that it might just cost you too much. And how might the resurrection of Jesus Christ give you courage to follow Him in radical ways? Finish again with this quote that I read earlier. The call of Christ is a call to live a life of sacrifice, a life of loss, a life of suffering that would be utterly foolish and nonsensical to live if there were no resurrection from the dead. So what if Jesus were raised from the dead? And what if you will live forever? What then? How then shall we live? Let's pray. God, we give ourselves to you and ask that you would direct our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, our lives. And we pray that deep in our hearts, the reality of your resurrection would come alive with power, setting us free from fear of loss of all kinds and giving us new courage, resurrection courage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.